everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Once again, I'd like to welcome you to the Progressive Commentary Hour, where we select one topic that's important, but a lot of people are not aware of how important it actually is, and we bring on those guests who've shown they've contributed something substantial to both understanding the underlying problem and, more importantly, its solutions. Today, the topic is going to look at all the different things that we've been told about covid Also, the mindset that allows so many individuals, over 75% of the American population, for an example, to not question what they're told, obediently lining up and taking a vaccine. And then when they get sick or a member of the family dies, they don't ask the hard questions. They're led to believe by a pharmacist, a nurse, a physician, someone that might have given it to them. It's not the vaccine. It's unfortunately your illness. And we've accepted that, not just in the area of COVID, but with a lot of other pathologies like cancer. Well, it's unfortunate to put up the good fight, but in the end, cancer won. Well, what about all the radiation and chemotherapy you gave me? Could that have contributed to it? Were there any other options, any other alternatives? No. Look, we're Sloan Kettering. We're MD Anderson. We're Roswell Park. If there was anything else that was known in the area of our specialization, you would have uh, gotten it because we're here to help you. Okay. And then we find out long after the fact that almost everything that we've been told to accept with total faith should have been questioned. We should have exercised our freedom of choice. But before you exercise the freedom of choice, you have to know Who do I I believe? What do I believe in order to make an informed decision? How can I give consent if I don't know the consequences because they're being hidden from me, downplayed, or denied altogether? And then I trust you with my life or my child's life. And then everything becomes consensus. Well, the consensus is, Gary, that, uh, you know, this was the right treatment. Really? I heard that there were people using other therapies, for example, with COVID, by taking high doses of vitamin D3. Well, that's just foolish, Gary. That's dangerous. You could end up going to the hospital for that alone. What about vitamin C intravenous? I heard that the Wuhan hospital gave all of its patients at the very beginning 24,000 milligrams of intravenous vitamin C, and none of them died. They all survived, recovered quickly, then had natural immunity. Well, first of all, Gary, that's irresponsible because there's no proof that vitamin C does anything outside of preventing scurvy. So have an orange. That's all you need. Really? That's all I need? That's all you need. Hmm. So those people who recovered getting 24,000 milligrams of vitamin C intravenous, it was a placebo, placebo effect or an anomaly. I see. So I shouldn't do anything to prevent a condition. Well, look. Ask the Surgeon General, ask Dr. Collins, U.S. Public Health Service, overseeing all of our medical agencies, the FDA, the USDA, National Institutes of Aging, National Institutes of Health. Do you think for a moment if there was a way to prevent a disease, we wouldn't be informing you of it? Okay, I'm 
who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm just going to pull back and say, I accept whatever you decide because you're in a hierarchical order. You're deferred up, and I'm, I'm a nobody. Therefore, all of us plebs must simply accept what you have to say with utter faith. Could I consider medicine in a, a new form of religion? You could, within margin. Remember, Gary, everything within moderation. That's the only ticket you need to know. So alcohol, arsenic, mercury, anything in moderation is okay? It's okay. Alcohol, it's okay. I see. Well, then that's where we're at. Then along comes a gentleman named Dr. Michael Nels, N-E-H-L-S. He's a medical doctor, board certified in his field, but he's also a PhD. He has a doctorate in molecular genetics and specializing in immunology. And over the years, he has identified the genetic causes of dozens of hereditary diseases, including in collaboration with two Nobel Prize winners. He's one of the leading pioneers in Alzheimer's disease and dementia research, along with therapeutic means to prevent and treat these neurological illnesses. Michael has also received many awards, including the Hans Prize for Molecular Psychiatry. Earlier, he was a vice president of the American Genomic Research Company and the CEO and Chief Science Officer of a German biotechnology firm. He's written several bestsellers in German, and his books have been translated in many languages. His most recent book has been translated into English, The Indoctrinated Brain, How to Successfully Fend Off the Global Attack on Your Mental Freedom. His website is Michael, that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L, dash Nels, N-E-H-L-S dot com. He also hosts a Substack page with his regular articles at michaelnels.substack.com. Nice to have you with us today, Michael. Hey, uh, Gary, thank you very much for the invitation. I feel very honored to be with you. Well, we're delighted to have you as a guest on this program. I've had to do a crash course in educating myself about your work. I've learned about your theory of how people's brains can become indoctrinated at a neurological level from our mutual friend, Dr. Naomi Wolf, who I've known for many decades and has a host uh, program here on Progressive Radio Network. And since I've been involved with the natural health movement for going on almost 60 years, six decades, our audience is very knowledgeable about lifestyle modification and the importance of exercise and nutrient deficiencies and having proper nutrient profiles and having DNA methylation tests to determine the actual biological age of your cells, your organs, and telomeres, and all the different ways we can extend the lifespan or repair the damage wherever possible of a cell, and natural protocols for strengthening the immune system and reducing inflammatory conditions and treating a multitude of illnesses. So before we dive into some of the primary themes about mental indoctrination related to whatever agenda is being played out by the elite who have been behind utterly disastrous policies and flawed science in dealing with COVID. I'd like for you to share the information you have about the role of vitamin D in both the prevention of SARS-2 virus and treatment. Because right now, over 40% of American adults are vitamin D deficient and it goes up to 70% 
for children ages 5 to 12. And this is especially worrisome now that we are giving the RNA vaccines to kids, saying it's necessary. And I'm asking, where's your science to back it up? And they're saying, trust us. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, we've trusted you too many times on too many issues, and you've been wrong. So if you're a serial repeater of being wrong, yet you have consensus science behind you, then I have to challenge all of science, except for the outliers, uh, like yourself and others, who though you're part of orthodoxy, your mind is not orthodox. It doesn't say it's resolved. The science is resolved. It's never resolved. So please begin by sharing vitamin D's role, both in prevention and treatment of SARS infections, and what role does it play for those who get vaccinated? And if it worked with SARS, why should we not then theorize that and hypothesize it could help other viruses as well? The forum is yours. Take your time. Yeah, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, well, the, the reverse that you just suggested that uh, vitamin D would also help for other respiratory diseases, I would actually return, reverse the argument. It was already known for decades that vitamin D helps to prevent um, to prevent the what we call the cytokine storm in influenza. So influenza was actually the first uh, pandemics that uh, were known for long, long time, and it was suggested already about 30 years or so ago that uh, the sunlight might play a role for the seasonality of the disease, that it comes usually in the wintertime, the northern hemispheres. And uh, about 25 years ago or so, it was shown that vitamin D, the lack of vitamin D in winter is a major cause. It was also known that people, when they have a severe cause of influenza, and die from influenza even, that it's not caused by the virus, but what we call a cytokine storm. And the cytokine storm means an overreaction of the immune system producing too many and too much of uh, so-called pro-inflammatory cytokines. And this unbalanced immune system comes from a deficit in vitamin D. So it was very early suggested that instead of even getting influenza shots, uh, every spring, every fall, uh, it's much easier and much more safe uh, for for the human, uh, for humans to actually just uh, get a vitamin D level that is would be uh, normal or let's say not normal, but I would say natural in winter, uh, in summer. Uh, the question is always what is what is actually natural, and in my book I went back and actually checked what is the level in. For people who live outside in the sun, where actually human humans developed, let's say in Africa. So when I go back and, and look at these data from Hatsta tribes or from Maasai tribes, the level of vitamin D in their blood is about 120, 130 nanomol per liter. And if they get pregnant, as a study out there, in pregnancy it even raises uh, goes up to 140, 145 nanomol per liter. This is about three times as much as is suggested to for bone health. And it shows that you know, under natural conditions, we have much higher vitamin D level than is currently suggested even for, yeah, for preventing uh, fractures, which is about 50 nanomol per liter. So 
So that was clear. Uh, we we have to have a higher level, and that would this level we would actually achieve in summer. By the way, if we are in sunlight in summer, we produce uh, several thousand of international units a day, so it can't be toxic. It's natural to produce uh, larger quantities than the, the mere 800 units, international units that are suggested for, for bone health. So, uh, so that was all clear. And when the first wave of death uh, appeared in Italy, in, in Europe, uh, the head of the European Society of Endocrinology, Endocrinology and Professor Giuliani actually proposed that uh, or suggested that the deaths that we see really caused by, uh, by uh, coronavirus and not just a PCR positive heart attack, really talking about uh, 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 respiratory diseases, uh, the respiratory uh, outcome of a SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, that the death toll just is a matter of uh, vitamin D deficiency. We should really quickly uh, raise the vitamin D levels. That was suggested by others as well. And there was a study in summer 2020 from the University of Heidelberg in Germany showing that if you are below 30 nanomole per liter, that's um, that's yeah what we have usually in, in, in Germany as average in winter time, at 30 nanomole per liter, the likelihood if you are just below compared to if you're just above, yeah, the whole group above 30 compared to the whole group below 30, the likelihood of dying from, from a COVID infection is 18-fold higher, 18-fold. And uh, later on, the, the German Cancer Research Center, who did a lot of studies on vitamin D and, ca and, and cancer risk and cancer progression, because we need vitamin D for immune surveillance. And of course, uh, cancer cells are yeah, cells that are kind of mutated and uh, are strangers to us. And uh, our immune system has to recognize them and kill them, pretty much like viral infected cells, which need to be uh, yeah, uh, destroyed. Otherwise, you can't get rid of the infection. So the immune cells have essentially these two purposes. So if if you're not enough, if you have not enough vitamin D to to compete against uh, cancer, then you also have not enough vitamin D against respiratory infections. And so they dived into these studies and they showed that it is published, peer reviewed, that nine of ten uh, coronavirus deaths could have been prevented by just raising the vitamin D level. And all experts in the field suggest that we have to raise it to about 125 nanomoles. Actually, there was a meta-analysis, I think it was published in 21, showing that if you raise the vitamin D level uh, to 125 nanomole per liter, which, as I said already, is the natural level, the likelihood of dying of, of COVID is, is practically zero. I, I repeat that, zero. And then, of course, people said, well, this is just a coincidence or is it a correlation, and uh, maybe it's uh, because... Vitamin D is used up during the infection. That's why we have a lower level of vitamin D. Um, so I went into these studies and I found out that in already, and I think it was in September 2020, a paper came out from the University of Cordoba in southern Spain. And here they actually showed that the vitamin D deficiency is causal. Causal meaning that if you are already sick with, with COVID-19, sick enough that you can't stay at home anymore and have to go to the hospital, uh, so you are severely sick, you have severe respiratory disease, 
And of course, the risk is now very high that the cytokine storm develops so strongly that it will kill you. Uh, then you have to go to the, maybe to the ICU first and then uh, get respiratory support, which is not a good thing <laughs> as well. And then you have a high likelihood of dying from the disease. So the people who went to the hospital, they were set, uh, essentially separated in two different groups by random. And one group uh, received, besides the normal treatment at the time, received uh, vitamin D, but not the vitamin D uh, as we usually eat it as a supplement, but the vitamin D pro-hormone, pro-hormone. The pro-hormone, 525-hydroxyvitamin D, is produced in the liver from vitamin D. It's a circulating form of vitamin D, uh, the vitamin D pro-hormone, and it's the final step before in the target cells where it's needed, it's transformed into vitamin D hormone, regulating the immune system, the cells, the, the genes in your immune cells. So the problem these people recognized very, very wisely is that if you take vitamin D and you have a deficiency, it takes a few days for the liver to convert the vitamin D into the vitamin D pro-hormone. And if you are very, very sick, you don't have these few days. Maybe in the next day you already uh, die from the disease, so you don't have the few days to increase the vitamin D pro-hormone level uh, in your blood. But the pro-hormone level is the one that is correlated with the outcome of the disease. So what they did, they gave the people vitamin D pro-hormone immediately uh, at admission and then every, uh, every other day. High enough dose to increase the vitamin D pro-hormone level in the blood very quickly. And this outcome of the study was astonishing. The risk of being admitted for the progression towards ICU was reduced by a factor of 25. I repeat this, a factor of 25. We were told in Germany that the major reason we have to get these shots is because we don't have enough space in our ICU units to, to essentially uh, heal or, or support all the people which get very sick. Well, a factor of 25 reduction was there right away. Actually, I gave a lot of lectures about this, and, uh, and, uh, and the head of the ICU unit in the University of Zurich wrote a letter to me and said he didn't know that, he didn't learn this in, in, in med school, but he listened to, a, to an interview I gave and immediately tested it with the patient, and it worked fantastic. Yeah? So they, 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 they very quickly, the, the problem resolved, essentially. So that was known, and of course, nobody died in the group that got the intervention with vitamin E pro-hormone versus the other group, which uh, were, uh, I think, like 15% or so died in the control group, which didn't receive any vitamin D pro-hormone. So that was really clear, clear from the beginning on. Then this, of course, this study was questioned because, as you already did, did, said in the introduction, uh, we shouldn't take any vitamin D. It's very toxic, very dangerous. And, uh, and I, I, I can't just laugh about that because uh, if you have only 30 nanomole and you need maybe 130, you have to essentially raise the level by 100 nanomole. And I have a formula in my book which says you need about 50 international units for every nanomole increase. So in this case, 5,000 units per day is a minimum you have to take for a few weeks. And then you have to control if you actually reach the higher level. Sometimes you need maybe even more. So 5,000 can't be toxic just to raise, to, uh, raise your level to, uh, to where it actually prevents uh, severe COVID and other respiratory diseases like influenza. 
It doesn't prevent, by the way, the disease. It just mitigates the effect of the of the infection. It's like when you drive a car, you have the you have this. Um, I don't know how to actually how it's named in English, but uh, if you have an accident and uh, something pops up, you know, your steering wheel. How do you how do you say that? Is uh, what pops up in the when you drive into an accident with a car? Gary, can you help me? Airbag. Yeah, airbag. Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't. Was not in my normal vocabulary, yeah, but but the airbag pops up. So the airbag is, of course, giving you safety, but it doesn't prevent the accident. And it's pretty much what vitamin D does. It, it, it makes sure that if you get infected, it's not that severe. But besides that, uh, vitamin D at a higher level uh, makes sure that your body gets rid of the virus much more quickly by a factor of by about three. So if you really want to make sure that others, you don't infect others, just getting rid of the of, of the virus in a threefold faster fashion is certainly the best protection you can you can give to others, besides, of course, staying at home if you're really sick. But only if you're really sick. I mean, <laughs> otherwise, if everybody takes vitamin D, then you don't have to fear to infect others because they will also have no severe case of, of, of the infection afterwards. Funnily, when this publication came out, uh, it was attacked immediately. And um, because it can't, it, what, what it, it can't be what it should not be, of course. <laughs> so they attacked it immediately and they made a counter, um, a counter study in Brazil about three months or four months later. The same conditions, people got sick from COVID and were admitted to the hospital and they got vitamin D. They got actually 200,000 international units immediately at admission. One group and the other control group, of course, got nothing. And the outcome was tested. But, of course, these people knew that it takes a few days to raise the, uh, the vitamin D pro-hormone level. It doesn't matter how much vitamin D you are giving. So these people, as I already alluded to, don't have the time. So the outcome was expected. There was no difference between the two groups. Uh, Something, some two strange things happened here in this study. First of all, in the discussion of this study, they don't refer to the Cordoba study. They don't actually explain the difference between the two studies, even though it was clearly uh, created to, to compete with the Cordoba study. And while the Cordoba study was attacked, this study was shown everywhere. Look, hey, see, but in, you take 200,000 units of vitamin E, nothing happens. So that was really strange for me to see. And then, of course, they, when I read about the study, it was also showing that the vitamin D level was raised, the vitamin D pro-hormone level was raised, given the impression that actually vitamin D increase, vitamin D pro-hormone increase was achieved. So I looked into to the study and strangely, the vitamin D pro-hormone level was not measured a day or two days after the, the, the admission. It was measured after the people were released from the hospital. That means a week or two weeks afterwards. But it, we were given the impression the vitamin D given the 200,000 units immediately raised the level and gave no protection. But that was not the case. It was never measured unless uh, until the people were actually released from the hospital. So it was clearly, uh, for me, an indication. The, first of all, this, this misinformation. Second, no discussion on the results of the Cordoba study, which they would have had a problem to explain other, they could have only explained it in the way I did just explain it, because that's the only way you can explain it. 
Uh, more studies followed with the design of the Brazil study, but also more studies followed with the design of the Cordoba studies, even study in a size of about a thousand patients. And the results of the Cordoba study were repeated. The same with the Brazil study they were repeated. So the argument is always the same. You need in the acute phase, if you have a low vitamin D, you need to increase the vitamin D pro-hormone level quickly. But in a, as, as a prevention, when you have a few days, of course, and you are not sick, but seriously sick, then vitamin D is sufficient to raise it to a level that you have a vitamin D pro-hormone level of about 125, which I suggest for not only for preventing respiratory diseases, but also for preventing or reducing the risk of having, uh, for example, uh, cancer. And it's also known that vitamin D is a very important neurohormone. So it's uh, so it's not only important for our physical immune system, it is also important, as I show in my new book, it's also important for our mental immune system. I appreciate that overview. Thank you. I was looking at your exhaustive research on Alzheimer's disease and dementia and their causes, and especially with respect to neuroinflammation and its adverse effects on the body's hippocampal area and that led you to believe that there is a credible evidence available that the engineering of the SARS-2 virus and perhaps even the development of a vaccine could be targeting the hippocampus. We've not been told that. This is what your uh, supposition is. As so for our listeners, the brain's hippocampus is responsible for memory and memory retrieval, especially short-term memories which seem to be impaired with people who have what we call brain fog, which, by the way, is a common symptom of people who suffer from long COVID following an infection or vaccine. But the hippocampus also plays a major role in learning and emotional processing, such as dealing with anxiety. And uh, so having this expertise in the biomechanisms that give us the rise of Alzheimer's what led you to connect the dots with the COVID virus and vaccine? And second, do we know anything about any unusual dramatic rise in Alzheimer's and dementia rates since the start of the pandemic or since the starting of the mass vaccination program? Um, yeah, I can do that. So I published a paper in 2016 called The Unified Theories Disease, where I show that Alzheimer's is not caused by age. It just requires usually a few decades to develop. And uh, that's the only reason we have a correlation with age. So the older you get, the longer you have time to develop the disease, but the, the age itself is not the cause. And uh, my first book actually about this, this topic was called, uh, it's not translated in English yet, but I hope I will do that soon. It's called the Alzheimer's lie. But the, the concept of the, the, the ideas behind the lie of about Alzheimer's, the lie being that age is the cause which has detrimental effect on our on our way we behave and uh, how we how we live because you have to imagine if you if you are told that alzheimer's cannot be prevented by lifestyle because age is the major cause then of course you have no interest in changing your lifestyle even if i tell you hey eat a little bit more vitamin d exercise a little bit more Make sure that you have no deficiencies in other micronutrients. Be socially active. Look that you get enough sleep. And most important for me, actually have a purpose in life. So if you look at all these 
parameters and say, well, you have to do something here. And sometimes it's a bit, bit more difficult maybe than something else. And, and so, so you are maybe not eager to change something, but of course you fear that you get Alzheimer's, so you might have uh, an incline to do it anyway. But if the physician is telling you, well, you can do whatever you want, Alzheimer's is, uh, is destiny, it's, it's, it's already in your genes, uh, it's, it's just caused by age, and the only thing you can do is actually is uh, committing suicide to prevent it. Uh, and I'm not making jokes here, this is what uh, representatives of the pharma industry tell us, that the only help that we can get to prevent Alzheimer's is a drug, but never a lifestyle. And uh, if you don't have drug, then the only way to prevent this is actually suicide. So it's, 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 this is not a joke, and it's really a, a bad joke, in my opinion, because we can prevent it. And, um, and COVID actually proves it now, my whole theory. We come to that in a moment. So, um, as you already alluded to, the uh, Alzheimer's is a neuroinflammatory disease. Neuroinflammation means that the a certain function of the hippocampus is uh, not not um, is undermined by the inflammation. And this function of the hippocampus, and I have maybe to get get, it, get into a little, little more detail. Sorry about my uh, pronunciation here, my my wording. To get into more detail that the hippocampus is able to learn our whole life. And it's very important that we learn our whole life because in former times, the knowledge of the elderly was important for the survival of the grandchildren. There's enough proof for that. And it's actually textbook in, in, school, in school books even. And it's called the grandmother hypothesis. And it's an explanation actually that Alzheimer's is not natural, quite the contrary. We are essentially destined to learn and be able to learn new things our whole life. Doesn't matter if you are just 60, 70, or even if you are 100 years old, you are still able to learn. And because, and that's because the hippocampus, our autobiographical memory center, has the ability to grow new cells uh, every day. And this is uh, not disturbed, even if we are 100 years old, or the ability is there to produce new cells every day. These cells are necessary to index new memories but these cells that are produced by adult hippocampal neurogenesis, these cells have different functions. So uh, in addition to helping us to memorize instantaneously even our own thoughts, which is required for thinking, if we cannot store our thoughts while in, during the thinking process in our, in our uh, working memory, which is only uh, currents in our brain, so to speak, there is no real memory. It's, it's called working memory, but it just memorizes things only for a few seconds. We need the hippocampus to intermediately store all our thoughts. Otherwise, we cannot refer to them back and they are lost. So we need for thinking, for deep thinking, we need the hippocampus and we need these new cells produced every day. Also, these cells allow us to be curious. They actually the neuronal correlate for curiosity. And curiosity is important that we learn. And only when we learn, we create a wealth of experience, which we can use to protect ourselves and protect, protect maybe the ones depending on us. And in order to, to live a curious life, you have to overcome the fear that if you ask questions or if you go in a new terrain, that you actually, yeah, uh, that you actually are willing to do that because everything that is new could be dangerous. And the funny thing is, these cells not only provide us with curiosity, they also are the 
the neuronal correlate for psychological resilience. So together, I call this whole system our mental immune system because we uh, have, do not have to fight pathological microorganisms, which our physical immune system or consisting of our immune system is uh, immune cells is important. If we have to fight pathological macroorganisms, people who don't want to kill us, people who want to maybe just harm us, people who want to take away the life we are used to live, which we are experiencing right now, then we have to use our mental immune system. We have to be curious. We have to understand. We, want to, we have to have wanting to understand what's going on. We have to have the resilience to ask the right questions. We have to have these cells, these cells created by the adult hippocampal neurogenesis to, to actually think, to be willing to think. And we have to memorize everything that we learn. So the combination of curiosity, psychological resilience, thinking, and memory, I call the mental immune system. And you can essentially destruct and, 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 and uh, destroy this mental immune system and take over people and control people by fear and by implementing narratives that are then completely uncompeted in their brain by previous thoughts because they will be overwritten, then you actually control people. And uh, what I've learned already from my studies on Alzheimer's, which is essentially uh, caused by a lack of this of the production of these adult neurogen uh, cells by neurogenesis. Um, so, so to prevent Alzheimer's, we just have to make sure we live a life that produces these cells on a daily basis, and then we, our brain goes in natural course, and we. Uh, stay free of Alzheimer's. We also stay free of depression. Um, this production is harmed, as you already alluded to, by neuroinflammation. And one thing that can cause neuroinflammation is uh, is an infection. In an acute case, it doesn't make uh, a difference. Uh, I would put it this way: it's not really pathological if the adult hippocampal neurogenesis is is silenced and blocked for the duration of an acute infection. Actually, it might be an advantage even from the evolutionary perspective, because if you have no adult hippocampalinogenesis during an acute infection, you don't want to go out of the, outside the room. You might, might want to stay in bed. You are curious. You don't want to socialize. And so you protect others, but you also protect yourselves because, for yourself because it helps the healing process. The problem is only when you have a chronic infection. We know this, for example, from borreliosis. Borreliosis, if not treated well, stays for long term in your body and creates a chronic inflammation. And the chronic inflammation then correlates to an increase of Alzheimer's because it blocks the neurogenesis of uh, the hippocampus. And when I studied this, these, these connections and all these uh, things that are that we know are causative for Alzheimer's, I, I, I found a unified picture that uh, shows how everything is connected together and how we can prevent Alzheimer's altogether. And yeah, please. Yes, I'm really enjoying what you're saying. I was going to ask you about some issues involving why the developers of the COVID vaccines utilize the PEG nanolipid molecule to encapsulate the RNA when it is well known that this nanolipid can self-organize. And we're seeing that in so many people who've died, and even those who haven't, but 
long, sometimes one and two feet long nanoparticles uh, encapsulated also with red blood cells are clogging arteries and veins. And only morticians who couldn't embalm the body because the uh, formaldehyde couldn't get in and they took tweezers and pulled these out and then they filmed them. And then this led to pathologists like Dr. Cole uh, examining this. And then we ask, well, why in the world would you give these nano particles in these uh, encapsulated to encapsulate uh, the RNA when it's well known that these nanolipids can cross the blood brain barrier? They, they can go into the heart. They're not stuck in the deltoid. That was a lie. And so therefore, we do not have any science today that shows how long, once you're given a vaccine, will it stop producing the spike proteins. One study lasted a month, and it lasted a month, another two months, and they were still reproducing the spike proteins in your body two months. Well, that's creating a massive amount of autoimmune conditions. And yet no one has discussed that. Anyhow, that, that I will say for a separate interview. But yeah, I want sure. to divert now. But, but what you're saying is, is you see, I, in, in my book, or I wrote my book because I looked at all these pieces of the big puzzle. I mean, questions that you're asking are all pieces of the puzzle that are difficult to understand. Because sometimes the pieces of the puzzle are just too small. You have to, have to, you have to see the whole picture. And when you see the whole picture, then the piece suddenly makes sense. And I think if we look uh, at what at everything that was happening from the perspective of the breakdown of the uh, mental immune system, then all these pieces of the puzzle uh, fall, uh, fall into place. Actually seamless. Uh, I'm pretty sure I can explain every detail what we have seen so far. I actually do that in my book. And you see that it will become a seamless, seamless um, picture where all these pieces fall into place. So for example, why use uh, the lipid nanoparticles? Well, first of all, it allows uh, the, the mRNA even on its own enter the brain. I mean, we know that from begin on, these, these lipid nanoparticles were generated for, for to get toxins, hemo, uh, hemotoxins against cancer into the brain. So why on earth would somebody for respiratory disease yeah, use mRNA in the first place. Why not just the protein, if at all? Why inject it in the, in the muscle uh, and, and not inhale it, maybe, where we really need the immunity? Why use the spike protein? Why the modified spike protein, which has the purine cleavage site and so forth? But going back to the neuroinflammation, and, 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 and then from this point of view, it make, might make sense. It was already known from SARS-CoV-1, which tried to make a pandemic in 2002, 2003, that uh, the spike protein from SARS-CoV-1, it was able to create a neuroinflammation. And we also knew at the time that the level of neuroinflammation, the cytokines that are produced, uh, are in reverse or inverse relationship to the size of the hippocampus. We knew, we knew at the time already that, for example, interleukin-1, interleukin-6 are able to stop or block completely the production of adult hippocampal neurogenesis. Of course, in an acute infection, I already mentioned, this is not really a problem. But if you want to really essentially break down and block and destroy the mental immune system, meaning stop the production of new nerve cells in the hippocampus with all the psychological effects, then of course you have to make sure that 
the spike protein is permanently in the brain because in the brain we have so-called microglia. These are immune cells. They have a receptor. It's called TLR4. And TLR4, by even if we are just born, it doesn't have to learn. It's into the evolutionary contact we had with, with viruses like coronaviruses for a long, long time. Actually, even mice have it. So we know probably 100 million years or so coronaviruses are out there and our immune system has adapted to them, having a receptor that recognizes spike protein. And this spike protein receptor is called TLR4. And TLR4 is on the brain, on the brain's immune cells. So if you get the spike protein into the brain, it activates this receptor. And this receptor leads to a test activation, leads to a cascade of events, which finally uh, lead to the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And we know these pro-inflammatory cytokines will block the production of new nerve cells in the hippocampus. So the only question that was there in 2004, 2005, 2006, when all these papers came out, was how, if I really want to block the, the immune, the mental immune system of people, how do I spike protein into the brain of people? That was the question. And the Nobel Prize answered it. The Nobel Prize winners of 2023 told us that uh, 15 years ago, they decided, well, we have to create a new type of vaccine. Uh, they, we know that the furine cleavage site, which was inserted, um, uh, was proposed in 2018 by a think tank of the DARPA that, uh, to make it a coronavirus, a bioweapon, bio we have to insert the furine cleavage site, which allows now the production not only of, of spike protein, but a spike protein that can be cleaved into halves, and the outer part of it, we call it the S1 subunit, is known to transverse and join transverse the blood-brain barrier and actually enter the brain and stay there. So it, it, even if you have the lipid nanoparticles, just the mere yeah, variation, engineered variation of the spike protein allows the spike subunit the one that is actually engaging with TLR4 and activating the neuroinflammation to enter the brain. Thank you. I want to take us in a little different direction now, and I have a little story to tell, mm -hmm. so please bear with me, because it's directly related to your work and your both functional work and your theoretical work. I've been an anti-aging scientist my entire adult life. I started as a junior scientist at the Institute of Biology back in 1970. In 72, I created the first study ever published or ever completed on fasting, intermittent fasting, and extending the life of rats by over 1,000 rats by over 22%. Mm -hmm. Then found out that all vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes prote were protein and had all eight essential amino acids. That had never been done before. And, uh, and that was important. But my most important work, which ties directly into yours, was I stopped, I'm, I'm a scientist, you know, a board scientist working inside, but also I start with a theory as all science is. You know, what if? What would happen if? And I came to the decision that if we could turn off inflammation in the body by different means, detoxify the body, and give the body enough rejuvenative capabilities and nutrients, then you should be able to live longer and the cell should be able to stay healthier longer. And I didn't believe that 
all these diseases, arthritis, dementia, Alzheimer's, heart disease, diabetes, were normal to the aging process. They were normal to our average lifestyle uh, and consensus behavior. This is an important issue. Why? Because you question the idea of why so many people are so complacent without realizing that their complacency could lead them into making choices would be disadvantageous. And I'm saying it's not just about their health. It's about everything. Example, I challenge my audience. If you're not willing to be careful and conscious about your own health, are you conscious and careful about your child's health? If you're willing to take, a, for example, the commercials on television of what you and your child should eat, and then you see your child developing diabetes and obesity and high, high blood pressure and heart disease at seven years old, then why would I ever respect your idea that you're going to find the right politician to vote for? You won't. Live in the right place? You won't. And uh, make the right choices of anything else in your life. Because how you do one thing in life is frequently how you do everything, even though it's frequently disguised. Because what a person says is not always what they believe. And so to test this, I took a group of individuals, and 22 individuals, but 700 plus, wanted to be in the study. To be in the study, you had to have dementia or Alzheimer's or a classical neurological uh, condition for at least four years, and most were averaging seven. You had to give us a letter from your neurologist or psychiatrist showing what medications were on, the type of symptoms you had, how long you'd had the disease, and the fact that there was no, no improvement. Then I had Dr. Martin Feldman one of the most respected neurologists in the United States, a scientist, MD, top guy, like yourself, graduated number one in, at Yale and uh, College of Physicians Surgeons. He oversaw the study, but I created the protocols, and I met every week for three months for about four hours. And we talked about no medicine. This is non-medical. Lifestyle, stress management, Belief systems, what do we believe in? What is the meaning of our life? Why do we wake up in the morning? Why do we want to wake up in the morning? Why do we don't? The nature of our conflicts, how we resolve them, prevent them, challenge them. Our diet, and everyone had uh, nutrient profiles done, and uh, they had their basic markers taken. There was no extensive blood work. And then they kept a diary. At the end of three months, we had people who had major improvements an actual reversal of conditions, including memory loss. We have major improvements in Alzheimer's and dementia. And, uh, and people, and the, we filmed it before and after, so you see on the screen a person day one and the last day. And then it was submitted, it was published in a major respected peer-reviewed journal. And then in 2017, it was published in National Library of Medicine PubMed. And, uh, and then I decided to do a more detailed study. I did a 16-month study where we met every week for 16 months. And even the worst cases of multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and we were able to reverse, not just improve, reverse completely every one of those conditions. And we filmed it all. And we had all the tests taken. And those people are alive and well today. In fact, one is 99 now. And the first day, seven years ago, he, he couldn't talk. He had the Alzheimer's stare. Today, he is functional. In fact, when I give a lecture at a retreat, he's answering the questions. He's dancing. He's singing. And so I was invited. Now, this is where it comes to you. 
I was invited to give my results at a major scientific conference in aging in Washington, D.C. There were about 7,000 scientists there, and I was one of the keynote speakers. But my results were supposed to be on a group of menopausal women, 500, over one year that we met every week, and we reversed 92% of all their, all their hormonal imbalances. The seven of the women actually became premenopausal, and all the things that go bad went better. But I didn't do that. Instead, I took a young gentleman whose parents, New York City police officers, to, uh, to Washington. I took a nurse uh, who had been head of nursing at Long Island Jewish Hospital, had terminal illnesses there. And I took a woman who had had advanced Alzheimer's who was being driven by her sister to a assisted living center for advanced Alzheimer's out in Illinois heard my radio program, turned around, came back in the city, came up to my office and said, is there any chance my sister could get in your study? And I said, sure. Well, 16 months later, she comes out, and the audience, mind you, you're given 22 minutes, and everyone's at their computers, and this is all boring as hell. And I say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to present my menopausal reversal study. I'm going to talk about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, hepatitis B and C completely reversed, and autism completely reversed. Jonathan came out. Jonathan, what do you have? I have cards. What are the cards from? Outstanding student of the month at one of the most important schools in New York. And he had no autism, and yet when I first met him, he couldn't speak. He grunted. And he had been on five antipsychotic medications, completely normal off all drugs, living a normal, happy life, as he is to this day. The woman was giving reading very technical material. As you know, uh, advanced Alzheimer's, end-stage Alzheimer, can't read anything. And this was a professor at New York University, and she was a curator of, uh, the, at uh, Lloyd's of London, and she couldn't see anything but just color, no, no definition of art, completely normal. And so each of these people got up and made short statements. Now here's what's important. We go outside, and about, I'm guessing, 500 people came out. They wouldn't know, what the hell is this about? And I said, well, the difference is you're working in a Petri dish on stem cells, and I'm working with whole human beings. I'm working with their mind. I'm working with their spirit. I'm working with their body, their cells, their DNA. And this is what happens when you, when you go in a quantum healing method versus a linear healing method. And virtually all of science that I'm aware of today, and all of medicine certainly, is linear. And it's groupthink. And it's indoctrinated. And then I said, so I'm willing to share the protocols. I have an open-door policy at the Tri-State Healing Center. I have 22 medical staff, board certified. We're open all the time. I reversed AIDS, and, and, uh, and there's this study. Here's a award-winning document here to prove it, using the same concept. No medicines. So then guess what happened? They were asking questions nonstop. Not a single scientist or physician followed up after that. So I did a different study in Chicago. More scientists, records from Roche Laboratories, all the blood work up, the T cells. And we took people who came in near death and 16 months later were thriving. No HIV in their body, no diseases, 2,000 patients. 2,000. I didn't charge a penny, by the way. I've never charged a penny in my career for this. So here's the issue. I have found 
that not a single demonstration by medical doctors in America in its history. Why? Not a single demonstration by professors who know that the students are frequently not going to have a job because artificial intelligence or automation is taking away their jobs. Why don't they demonstrate against that? Against high tuitions and forgiveness of student loans? Not a single demonstration nationally by school teachers about how bad the curriculum is and how politicized it's become. None. Hmm. No demonstrations against COVID by doctors, nurses, pharmacists. No protest. And those who did find something like yourself wrong and brought that truth now are shown to be accurate and honest and their information was correct. Yet all the other 99% of doctors and scientists have stayed quiet. Why? So I should trust them if they don't have the courage to look for the truth but are acting like Pavlo's dogs? So I see everything in our world. I mean everything from church leaders. When was the last time the Catholic Church and Pope ask all of those people to demonstrate against mass immunization or anything else that is legitimate? Not once. You individuals, outliers can, but you pay a price. You talked about being attacked. You talked about they tried to discredit you. I'm sure that was a surprise since you're both a highly respected MD, PhD. You are at the top of all of these efforts and you're originating ideas, but those ideas just happen to challenge the status quo. And you're from Germany? Yes. And, you, <laughs> and you don't think that that has a cultural intonation of how they're going to respond to you? And I'm looking at the United States, well, who in the hell am I supposed to trust and believe when everyone seems to be at some level conditioned to stay within the norms? You're rewarded for compliance. You're punished for disobedience or challenge, even if what you're challenging is correct. Show me your position on this, please. I've given you mine very briefly. Um, when it comes to people saying, why are you asking me to do this? What's what could go wrong? Like artificial intelligence? Oh, everyone's on to it now. Well, of course they are. And they're not going to know about the side effects till it hits them. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Please give us your closing thoughts on this, if you would. Well, I'm, I'm fully with you. I mean, uh, everything you're saying, I can just uh, sign it off. You know, it's, it's, it's correct. And uh, I have the same experience. I do the same stuff that you do in Germany. And uh, and I think we're on the same page. Uh, but uh, what I think is we're not alone. You and I, first of all, we have listeners here. We have people who listen to us at the moment. And they I know for sure, just by reverse argument, that their hippocampus is functioning. Otherwise, they would not be curious to listen <laughs> to us. They would not have the resilience to follow us. And they wouldn't start thinking about what we are saying. But my book, I have written my book because I feel a responsibility. And I think everybody who listens to us should have this responsibility because if you are able to think, you should take over responsibility for yourself. Of course, that's what you're doing already, I guess. But you also should take over responsibility for the others. In my book, I show that the Solomon Nash showed that if the, that people who have not the ability to think follow by system one, the mass, they follow where they feel safe. But we have to show them that there's another mass that can follow, a mass of people who understand. And this mass is out there. We just have to open our mouth. So everybody who listens to us right now should also open his mouth and show them, everybody that there's a mass of people. 
and not just you and me, but there are really 20, 20, 30, maybe 30 percent already who understand that what's going on. And if we just double the size of these 30 percent, Solomon Nash shows us how to do that, then we are a majority of thinkers again. And I'm pretty sure now is the time that we can reverse this whole, I would say, miscultural development. And at the end, maybe in a few years from now, we have a better society than it was even before 2020. I agree with you. Thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, Dr. Michael Nels, N-E-H-L-S, dot Substack, or in his book, which you really should be reading, The Indoctrinated Brain, How to Successfully Fend Off the Global Attack on Your Mental Freedom. All the best to you, and I look forward to our next conversation. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for watching and listening. Share it with other people, and have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many 